0: Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, January 26th, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security. Last year, I'd hoped to host a number of shows on on how important space has become for American national security. And today, we're going to start a series of shows for the year 2022 that that covers space, the Space Force, and how important space is for America's continued dominance in the military arena and for our economy. And I suspect you're really going to enjoy today's program. Our guest today is Professor David Burbach from the U.S. Naval War College. Professor David Burbach is Associate Professor of National Security Affairs and teaches the politics of U.S. foreign policy, space security, and international relations. His scholarly interests include civil-military relations, defense planning, and the relationship between international security and technology, particular space and nuclear policy. Before joining the Naval War College faculty in 2007, he taught at the Army School of Advanced Military Studies and also worked for several policy analysis and information technology organizations. Dr. Burbach earned a Bachelor of Arts in Government from Pomona College, then his Doctorate in Political Science at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT. Dr. David Burbach, welcome to National Security This Week. Good morning, John. Thank you for having me on today. And it looks like uh, on our Zoom picture here that we're sharing uh, that you are at home. Is that right?
1: That is correct. I'm at my home in Providence, Rhode Island.
0: All right. That's a beautiful area. I, uh, I know it well. I, I spent a year at the Naval War College in Newport, so I'm very familiar with, with Providence. Uh, so, Professor Dur- Burbach, I, I often start the show by trying to learn a little bit more about our guests, uh, your background and whatnot. Uh, that said, you pursued a doctorate in political science from mm-hmm. MIT. What drew you to study political science?
1: sure john i 'm happy to talk about that i uh, I grew up as a cold War kid uh, and I actually uh, you know, in some ways talk since we 're talking about space today it 's uh, returning to my interest because i as a kid, I wanted to be an astronomer or study planetary study the planets um, but my interest in technology back in the early 1980s led me to get interested in things like nuclear weapons, rockets, and missiles you know what why did we, what could this stuff do and then that led to being interested in well, why do we have all them? Why? When might we use these these massively powerful weapons? And I got increasingly interested in the politics of, of science and technology as well as uh, the, the the science itself. So I uh, switched to, uh, and well, and I guess the, the, the more prosaic answer is also, when I got to college, I realized that I liked writing papers more than I liked doing my math homework. And at <laughs> some point it sunk in that that was a, a bit of a minus if I wanted to be an astrophysicist. Uh, so I actually switched to study political science Science and uh, went to MIT because that actually that's a as you, as you might expect for MIT their political science department is particularly strong in science and technology uh, you know has a, a very strong national security studies program uh, so I went I decided to to go in that direction. Uh, and, uh, so spent the 1990s, uh, mid, mid to late nineties at MIT. And then, uh, about the last, uh, 15 years now, I have been in the, in the unusual, some, somewhat hybrid position of being a government academic. <laughs>
0: yeah. And your specialty areas of study and teaching, especially at the Naval War College, uh, what drew you to those specific topics, including space security? <laughs>
1: Sure. Um you know I've been, I've done a couple of things and you know well uh, to up a little bit with the end of the Cold War and then the focus on the uh, War on Terror, um, space was not a, a top flight issue for uh, for the military or for political science in general. Um, I also developed a, a strong interest in understanding the politics of foreign policy. Why did we? How and why did we make the decisions we made to get into wars, to organize our military in certain ways, to buy the weapons we did? Understanding how public opinion fit into all of that um, and. And then, especially since I began teaching for the military, um, uh, focusing specifically on what we call civil-military relations. Mm-hmm. Um, how, in a, you know, it, how in a democracy do we control and organize um, and relate to the military? Not, not just at the let's we don't want to have a military coup level. I mean, no, nobody wants that. <laughs> um, but more specifically, how do we make sure that we do well while fighting? You know. Protecting the country while also living up to the sort of democratic norms, um, you know, and political control of a professional military that we hope to find. So um, that that's that's a subject that uh, you know has really. Cert, you know fit well with trying to educate our militaries. So i'm sure you know in your own uh, career as a navy intelligence officer you know you had to think about those issues about you know what what what's the proper role of a professional military officer in our democratic society um, and space uh, has as I said, has been a lifelong interest of mine and as the war on terror has wound down we've focused more on issues with china and russia as potential peer competitors um this is you know space is really pretty rapidly moved up the the uh, agenda for the Defense Department. So I've been increasing the amount of teaching and research I'm doing in that area. And this this has really now become an issue of, of great attention for the country.
0: Uh, and David, let me ask a quick follow up question on that. Um a lot of the students that I've taught at, say, Carleton College or, or or prior to that at Metro State University have an interest in that sort of that intersection of uh, studying national mm-hmm. security issues and serving in a national security capacity. You happen to be somebody with a doctorate who teaches uh, in DOD at the Naval War College. What kind of advice would you give to students who are in college today who are maybe in the international relations track or policy or political science track in general? Uh, for how they can get into uh service in the government in that capacity.
1: Um boy, that's uh that, that- that's a it's a tough question because the uh, you know one unfortunate one one reality is so long as the uh, you know we we've had the uh, budget constraints and and other things that we've had in government it isn't necessarily easy uh, I mean it's it, uh, so it's I very I, I competitive
0: to, environment right
1: <laughs> it uh, it is um, and certainly one one avenue is in fact military service uh, and uh, you know what, not only serving in the military uh, but we, there are a lot of people who if you look at the civilian employees, the civilian policy uh, analysts at DoD a lot of them have prior military experience. Um, what I would suggest in general is um, you know probably to get into a, a, an interesting government career they're probably going to need some form of master's degree beyond uh, a, a, a bachelor's degree and uh, there are various programs in international relations um, but also in addition to studying the very theoretical part of political science, I would advise getting some practical, Managerial skills, uh, practical skill—you know, for only b- being able to write a good, concise memo, having mm. some understanding of how to navigate organizations. Um, you know, I, I think it, you know we political scientists do a pretty good job of helping people to understand the really big picture, how politics work, what's going on in the world. Um, if you if you really want to be competitive, I, I would also try to make sure that you're able to to bring you know some more practical skills of how how are you going to be able to function, you know. It, in an environment where you're not simply you know, writing, writing papers about the big questions but needing to, to take action, to yeah. make practical recommendations, develop some talent at doing that.
0: So turning concepts into actual policy. That's the key. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. David Burbach, and we're discussing the importance of space to American national security. Uh, So, David, let's plunge right in and get started on our topic today, space. I think it would be probably wise to start with describing what is in space today, so people sort of understand what's on orbit. Can you give our listeners a sense of how many satellites are currently on orbit around the Earth? Maybe some of the countries that are the mm-hmm. biggest spacefaring nations.
1: Yeah, today there are just about five thousand operating satellites orbiting the Earth, um, and and probably you know, one of the the most important things about that number is how rapidly it's growing. Ten years ago, there were about 1,000 operational satellites. Just five (laughs) years ago, 2,000. The number's skyrocketing. Uh, And actually, you know, it it sounds a little crazy, but you can attribute a lot of that to one person, Elon Musk. (laughs) Um, Of those 5,000 satellites, a Approximately two thousand of them belong to, to SpaceX uh, for their Starlink communications program. So, of that five thousand, about three thousand are owned by uh, the U.S. government or U.S. commercial entities. Of that three thousand, again, about two thousand are SpaceX alone. Um, the uh, the U.S. military has something like two hundred and fifty satellites that it operates, um, and we're we are way out in the lead because of the uh, the growth of the of the American commercial sector. For other countries, uh, China is the number two country with about 450 satellites. Uh, Russia has about 150. Japan, the UK, and India between 75 and 150 each. Um, Other countries that you might expect like Germany or Canada also have, you know, several dozen satellites. Um, But uh, with the the growth, not only SpaceX, but some of the other new startups that are launching lots of little satellites, uh, the US is just way out in front, uh, on total number of satellites in orbit.
0: Okay, and let's talk a little bit about the kinds of orbits that satellites follow, because that actually is pretty important uh, with regard to their functionality. And I found from you know teaching my courses at Carleton College, you know, the overview course on the U.S. intelligence community, that my students actually really find this uh, this information pretty fascinating. This concept of orbital mechanics. So maybe we should start with uh, what kind of satellites are on low Earth orbit or LEO orbit.
1: Sure. If uh, if you know, back back in high school, I actually used to work at the planetarium in Portland, Oregon. So All if right. I, I can slip back into uh, planetarium mode, imagine, if you will, uh, that the Earth is the size of a soccer ball, standard soccer ball, about eight inches across. If if soccer is too exotic for you, imagine a basketball. It's just a little bit larger. If the Earth is the size of a soccer ball, that means about one inch equals about a thousand miles. Um, On that scale, the moon is a little smaller than a tennis ball, almost exactly the size of a billiard ball. Um, So if you imagine a soccer ball, um, most of the satellites that we're talking about are in what we call low Earth orbit, meaning they're pretty close to the Earth. And on that soccer ball scale, that means they're about a quarter of an inch to one inch above the surface of that soccer ball. So, I mean, really, if you put your finger on the soccer ball – an awful lot of those satellites are, you know, no no further off the ball than the, than the thickness of your finger. Just to to illustrate that another way, the International Space Station orbits about 400 kilometers above the Earth. Um, Minneapolis to Chicago is 600 kilometers. So if if the space station is directly overhead, it's in space, but you know, I uh, it's it's closer to Northfield than Chicago would be. Um, so of those 5,000 satellites. Um, I think about 4,000 of them are in low Earth orbit. Um, and so they're – you know most satellites are pretty close to the Earth. At that uh, distance, it takes about 90 minutes for them to complete a full circle around the Earth going about 18,000 miles an
0: hour. And, and what kind of satellites specifically are in LEO orbit typically?
1: Um it's a, it's a pretty wide range. The by number, the what, where that growth is happening is communi- uh, constellations of communication satellites. Uh, Basically, putting cell towers in orbit too, so that you'll be able to get high-speed wireless data via satellites as well as via local cell towers. Um, more traditionally, that's also the orbit where we operate uh, civilian uh, remote sensing satellites, taking pictures of the Earth in visible or infrared or other types of uh, you know other spectrum. Uh, that's also on the non-civilian side, uh, where most of these spy satellites, you know, that are con- that are taking pictures of the Earth for military and intelligence purposes. Uh, you know, various uh you know, some weather satellites operate at low levels like that. Um and uh you know, not you know, we, we can talk in a second about other types of satellites, not that's not where GPS operates, that's not where like your direct TV broadcast satellite operates. Um, but and human spaceflight almost always, you know, except for the Apollo missions to the moon, human spaceflight has pretty much all been in that relatively low orbit
0: band around the Earth. Okay. So why don't we go ahead and talk next about, you know, a geostationary, geosynchronous orbits. Uh, You were touching on that just a minute ago. What kind of satellites are located in this orbital area and where is that orbital plane uh, specifically?
1: Sure. There's a very special orbit uh, that we call geosynchronous orbit or geostationary orbit. Um, Think back to that soccer ball. I mentioned that, you know, an inch off the surface, satellites are taking about 90 minutes to go all the way around. The moon, uh, takes 28 days to go around. And as you move from close to the Earth to farther away from the Earth, orbital periods get longer and longer. Well, if it's 90 minutes close in and 28 days far out, there's a particular distance where it takes exactly 24 hours to go around. And, of course, the Earth takes 24 hours to turn. So if you put a satellite at exactly that distance, it moves along with the rotation of the Earth, and so it appears to hover overhead in the same spot. That's a really useful thing, because you can point an antenna at that spot, and the antenna doesn't have to move. You know, like, and thus, you know, the TV antennas that you see on people's houses, they're not on, you know, some giant gimbal tracking a high-speed satellite. They just point at the same place. So that's where we put our, our big communication satellites. Um, TV broadcasts, uh, but also satellites that will transmit telephone Calls from one continent to another. So the number of satellites in geosynchronous orbit is is relatively small. It's a couple of hundred, but those are some of the biggest, most expensive, most critical you know hard to replace satellites. Um, both for commercial use, uh, also military communication satellites uh, up at that altitude. Also some weather satellites because at that that far out you're able to see the whole disk of Earth at once. So you can get a, a wide a wide angle picture all at once. Mm-hmm.
0: And that orbital plane, that's out just plus or minus a degree or two off the equatorial plane, is that right?
1: Exactly, exactly. I should have clarified that. Yeah, so that they if, – if it's directly over the equator, it won't really move north to south very much either. If it's at that distance, you know, going from pole to pole, then it's still moving north-south. So yeah, over the equator uh, and – that's about twenty-five thousand miles out. By my soccer ball example, it's about two feet away. Uh, for perspective, you know, the moon is by that scale twenty feet away from the soccer ball, <laughs> so about ten times farther out from geosynchronous orbit. So, going to the moon is really, you know, relative to most, you know, of our satellites, there's almost there's nothing out at the the lunar distance. He is as close as the moon is relative to Mars or Venus or other planets. Um, all of our space use of space action occurs pretty close. Into the Earth,
0: okay, <clears throat> and and finally, uh, so we know we're at 45 degrees uh, mm-hmm. latitude here in, in, in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. It cuts almost halfway through, right? And I know that uh, when I was assigned as naval attaché in Helsinki, Finland, Helsinki is actually at roughly 60 degrees north latitude, uh, which is roughly the same as uh, the middle of Hudson Bay in Canada. So the further north you get, let's think Russia. <laughs> You, mm-hmm. you have to have a way to have these communication satellites that support you, but if you're on geosynchronous uh, orbit, it's kind of hard to reach that high northern plane. So I know that the, uh, the old Soviet Union developed some capabilities— uh, to have communication satellites that would support mm-hmm. their military operations, can you talk a little bit about those more specialized orbital paths?
1: Sure, and just to, just to help your your listeners visualize that, if you're at the North Pole, something out at the equator is on the horizon. So if you're in northern Siberia trying to talk to a satellite out over the equator, your antenna is pointing down into the trees. You know, it's <laughs> it's uh, it's dif- you know it's difficult to work. So what the what the Soviets came up with, uh, and here. To to, get a, to to complicate our, our orbital mechanics a little bit, uh, most satellites move in something close to a circle. Um, the Soviets came up with the idea of having a satellite in a very elliptical orbit, very elongated, um, and a satellite in that orbit, when it f- comes down close to the Earth, will move fast, and then it, as it goes up to apogee, will be moving pretty slowly. Um, so they figured if you have a satellite that's in a highly inclined orbit so that it, it goes pretty far north and have its apogee up you know, at that altitude, it will spend half of its orbit in roughly the same spot, not stationary like the geosynchronous satellites, but not moving very fast. And so that's pretty easy for an antenna to track. So if you have a, an orbit with several of those satellites at any given time, one of them is likely to be in a relatively slow-moving spot, and you can have an antenna follow it Then as it starts to speed up, you have the antenna move to the next one that's coming into that slow spot. And so Russia still makes use of satellites like that because, again, just the geometry makes the equatorial satellites a little more difficult for them to use.
0: So I think if I remember correctly, they called that a Molnaya orbit or a lightning I, ex, or, orbit?
1: Ex, exactly, exactly. And they
0: refer to that because it, when it's at, uh, what is it, perigee, closest to the Earth as it's uh, going over the Antarctic continent, it's moving very, very fast. And then as it uh, shoots back up above the uh, northern uh, hemisphere, it sort of slows down in that sort of dwell area uh, above the North Pole, roughly.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Okay. Uh, So, for our audience, uh, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. David Burbach from the U.S. Naval War College, and we're discussing the importance of space to American national security. Uh, All right, so continuing on with this discussion of uh, what's up in space, uh, Professor Burbach, let's talk a little bit about the hazards of space travel in the modern era. Can you tell us about the amount of debris that is in orbit today? How much junk is up there, and why is it so dangerous? Sure.
1: Well, as an oh my gosh number, uh, there are probably several hundred million pieces of debris the size of a BB or larger. Uh, Now, space is big, but a hundred million is a lot. Let me. What am I talking about here? What's actually up in space? Well, as I said, there there are several thousand operational satellites. There are probably a couple thousand more defunct satellites. Uh, You know, satellites will gradually lose altitude and reenter, even several hundred kilometers up. There's Still, a tiny bit of atmosphere that will very slowly cause drag, slow a satellite down. Up in geosynchronous orbit, that'll take hundreds of years. Uh, the space, you know, at, al- at the altitude of the space station, they have to give themselves a little boost every few weeks or months, I think, to stay at the same altitude. So there are satellites that are left. Some have reentered. Many are still up there. Um, there are also burned-out rocket stages after they put a satellite in orbit. They're left. Um, there are pieces that fall off. You know, there are like you know things that astronauts have dropped when they were working on <laughs> spacewalks and floated away. Um, and old satellites often blow up not because we want them to but the the you know if you think about how you know they warn you about how you're the lithium battery in your laptop if you mistreat it it can explode well space is a difficult environment so when a satellite's dead and it's warming up and cooling down over and over again the battery might explode there might be leftover propellant that leaks and causes an explosion so actually a fair number of defunct satellites will break up on their own when something eventually goes wrong Every now and then satellites smash into each other and create thousands and thousands of pieces of debris – and there have been, not a lot, but there have been a number of cases of countries testing anti satellite weapons yeah. where they blow something up in space and that creates a lot of debris. So, what does that add up to? Uh, we're tracking about 30,000 pieces of debris that are several inches or bigger. Uh, and then again, probably hundreds of millions, you know, a millimeter or bigger. Now, why does this matter? Uh, if in low Earth orbit, if you're traveling about 18,000 miles an hour, worst case, if you have a head on collision, that's 36. 6,000 miles an hour or about 10 times the speed of a rifle bullet, um, kinetic energy goes by the square of the velocity. So that's 100 times as much energy as a bullet of the same size hitting. So even something a millimeter is plenty to punch a hole in the thin aluminum skin of a satellite or a space vehicle. Something a few inches in size can, you know, can destroy a satellite pretty easily. So, you know, every now and then the space shuttle would come back with, you know, little dings and dents where tiny, you know, even a fleck of paint would be enough to damage the tiles on the old space shuttle. Mm. Uh, And if the space station were to be hit by, you know, something the size of, you know, like if an astronaut threw a wrench overboard and it came back and hit the space station, you know, years later, you know, that could easily punch a big hole in the side of the space station.
0: Yeah so so what you're talking about is very bad in other words.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. We <laughs> yeah. we do debris is you know space is big but it's not big enough.
0: So if anybody out there in our listening audience wants to find a way to get uh, unbelievably wealthy if you can come up with a way to clean up space you will have solved a, a major challenge for the entire uh, human race. Uh, in fact okay. <laughs> I, I will I will
1: say on that the uh, head of space force the uh, has actually said he would eagerly pay people by the by the ton to remove debris from space like figure it out we we will write you a big check okay
0: get out your big magnets Okay. So now that we understood a little more about uh, orbital mechanics and the challenges of operating in space today, uh, Dr. Baerbach, let's let's dive into the national security ramifications of space, space operations, and our reliance on space really for a wide range of uh, warfighting capabilities. Let's concentrate on that initially. How important has the global positioning system or GPS been for the U.S. military for the past quarter century, let's say?
1: extremely important. Uh, GPS, you know, uh, uh, know, there was a time when I might have had to explain GPS. Maybe I still need to explain it because we now are so used to it, nobody even knows that it's there. Just, you know, we – your younger listeners will not remember, but there used to be a time when you didn't know where you were unless you could look at a map and figure it out.
0: A paper map. Um,
1: (laughs) I, I know it's, uh, it's, it's it's a you know I still have my old you know topic paper topographic atlases so you know when uh, when when the big one hits you know I'll, I'll still be able to find my way around maybe but <laughs> GPS is a it's a constellation of several dozen satellites orbiting a, a, almost out to geosynchronous they're not quite that far out but a constellation of satellites that broadcast signals that let a user pick them up and triangulate to extreme precision where they are. Um, That's huge because for military operations, knowing where you are, not just like, you know, which town am I near, but where you are to the level of a few feet one way or the other allows you to do things like. Lob a cruise missile and have it go directly. You know, choose which floor of a building you want it to come into uh, when it reaches its target and attacks something. Um, or it allows you to operate in all weather. I mean, the uh, you know, it if if used to be you know before we had GPS, if you were out at sea on a ship and it was severely fogged in, you know, you could you could be really good with a sextant navigating by the stars. But if you can't see the stars, you've got a problem. So you know you have a compass and you kind of figure out well we've been headed this direction at 10 knots for how long i guess we must be about here gps means no matter what the weather is you know where you are to an accuracy of a couple of feet We even are now able to use it so accurately that airplanes can land using GPS, even Mm -hmm. without radio beacons on the ground. So this has been tremendously enabling not only for all of us to be able to navigate with our cars, uh, to, you know, again, have our commercial airliners now, you know, can be much more accurate, land in worse weather. And the military, which likes to do things like be able to operate at night, operate in bad weather, target weapons with extreme precision, um, it's, it's been really revolutionary for both the civilian economy and for military operations.
0: And, and what other ways is, uh, is space important to the U.S. military or for U.S. national security in general?
1: Sure. You, you know, one, uh, a, uh, I'll, I'll suggest to your readers if they, if they want to see kind of a, a short, you know, cool little video, Space Force, I think actually it was still the Air Force that put it out before Space Force. If you, you Google Space Force a day without space, there's about a three or four minute video, you know, sort of imagining all the awful things that happen, you know, to some poor team trying to deal with a terrorist somewhere if they lose their space capabilities. Um, but we use it for a lot. Um, in addition to GPS, space is very important for military communications. Uh, if you're operating, you know, if you're operating somewhere, you know, out overseas, you won't have a cell phone network you can use. So, satellite phones, satellite communications, uh, satellite links connecting drones back to, a, you know, we we control most of our unmanned uh, drones from a base in Nevada, just outside Las Vegas, yeah, using creature, satellite links. for Air Force they, base, right? Exactly, exactly. Uh, so very important for communications, uh, defense weather satellites. Um, but probably the the most, the single most important historically has been we use space to spy on people. Right. Um, we use space to see what's going on. It was only two years after Sputnik that the US first launched its first spy satellite because we had no idea. How many nuclear missiles did the Soviets have? Where were their nuclear missiles? What kind of missiles did they have? And uh, our spy satellites told us pretty quickly, hey, they actually have a lot fewer missiles than we feared. Um, that was a good thing. You know, we they provide the ability to know, are they getting ready to launch their missiles? We also have satellites specifically that watch for missile launches. They can detect the, yeah. the flame, you know, the plume from a rocket taking off. So space has been absolutely essential to be able to know what adversaries are up to, uh, especially back in the day, you know, when the, the Soviets were a very close society. I mean, we, we didn't even know where cities were located and, you know, they, they hid their <laughs> maps so much
0: with space. We know know what
1: everybody is up
0: to all around the world. So let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the dangers to the satellites that exist. You talked about the ones that are up there sort of out of foolishness or <clears throat> bad engineering or just the way things go, the, the debris that's up there. But what about the intentional targeting of, of satellites? The U.S. has tested anti-satellite uh, capabilities, ASAT mm-hmm. capabilities, missiles specifically. And we know that both China and Russia have done the same, Russia more recently, Uh, What's most concerning to you about ASAT capabilities becoming more mainstream and potentially being used really Mm -hmm. immediately should a conventional war develop between major powers because of the importance of space to military operations?
1: Sure. I'd, I'd say two things, and you, you actually you've, – you've touched on both of them a bit. One is simply the uh, – as we've talked about, the debris creation where that one – you, your, your listeners may have uh, seen in the news the Russians conducted an ASAT test in November. That alone create – of those 30,000 pieces of debris I mentioned that we can track, that test alone created more than 1,000 new ones. So you don't have to destroy many satellites to really start increasing the amount of debris in space. Um, so, you know, even on it, and of course, it doesn't matter whether it's in wartime or a test, uh, you know, even if people start doing significant, you know, a, a large number of anti-satellite tests, that could make space really difficult. And so if we have sort of, an, you know, in the in the bad old days of the Cold War, uh, there were years where we did nuclear tests just to sort of show, well, you did three nuclear tests, so we'll do three nuclear <laughs> tests. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if we if we did that with satellites, space would get pretty messy pretty quickly. The other one that, that you hinted at there is uh, we often worry that space is is what political scientists call offense dominant mm-hmm. uh, meaning whoever strikes first, whoever goes on the offense probably gets an advantage. It's really difficult to defend a satellite from an incoming uh, anti-satellite weapon. You can't put armor on it like a tank because it would be too heavy to launch right. so there's 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 a very there's a real concern that there are strong first strike incentives and that can lead to instability where if I fear that things are about to go bad, I want to, you know, I may think it's worth preempting and taking out your space capabilities before you have the ability to do that to me. So if space is really seen as as highly weaponized as as a theater to take the war into, um, it could be one where countries feel feel a need to go for to to be very quick on that trigger finger. Um, you know, when you're talking about war between nuclear armed peer competitors, that's uh, that's a worrying thing.
0: I'm going to follow up on that uh, in, in a little bit. But one of the things I think we should talk about, you've mentioned a little bit, uh, is uh, sort of a, a rather sizable uh, development in American national security interests, especially with regard to space. And that's a creation of what is still a relatively new U.S. Space Force. So first, let uh, let's—what what is the U.S. Space Force? Can you explain that to, to our listeners?
1: Sure, the uh, space force—it's it, it, both an extremely important and new development, but in other ways, it's it may be a little less than it appears. And the way that it's new, is we organize our military into distinct services. You're, you know, the Army, Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps, um, and. Creating a new one is a really unusual thing. Uh, the Air Force was created in 1947. Uh, the other three have been around to a rough approximation since the beginning of the country. So to create a whole new service, meaning that the people serving in Space Force, you know, they, they're not an Air Force or an Army. You know, they are Space Force officers now with their own uniforms you know they'll eventually have you know their own fight song and their own medals <laughs> and the, you know any anyone who's been in the in the military will know there there's a lot of emphasis put on you know th- things like uniforms and challenge coins and you know heraldry uh, i mean that that that's you know that's the relatively silly and easy stuff. Um, so this is this is what, uh, the biggest change in U.S. defense organization really since the creation of the Air Force. Um, now, what is not so new about it is mostly Space Force takes what we already had for space, mostly from the Air Force, and puts it into this new service. So it is not the case that. Three years ago, we didn't have anything in space, and now we have like space battle cruisers. Run now, <laughs> most for most people in space force, they you know something like you know the vast majority were air force. So mm-hmm. an air force officer who used to operate GPS or work at the Cape Canaveral launch base, or you know, did surveillance to see what others were up to in space. Mostly, they took off their Air Force uniform and have now put on Space Force uniforms. The intent of the change, though, is to, to create more focus on space. Um, and John is a former Navy officer you, you will be familiar with you know services tend to have communities that dominate yep. uh as an intel officer you probably did not feel like you were in the dominant community definitely uh, not <laughs> you know absolutely not and the air force was seen as it was you know run by fighter pilots you know yeah. for the the last several decades the 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 real dominant focus of the air force has been on tactical aviation mm-hmm. uh in the early cold war bomber pilots um not so much space not that they you know didn't care but the the sense that developed was that as china and russia were investing in space that we didn't have enough focus and that creating a separate service would really create a a core institution core of people in the us for whom everything they did every day was space and that they would be more focused in developing new technology and operating it in in you know uh, spending you know, spending money wisely. So that, that was the bureaucratic impetus for this creation.
0: And and what kind of capability is Space Force bringing to bear in support of American national security? And in other words, you know, can you talk a little bit, maybe not super detailed, but just sort of in general, mm-hmm. how is Space Force organized and what missions do they perform or will they perform? And and my understanding mm-hmm. is that much like the Marine Corps is in the Department of the Navy, U.S. Space Force is in the Department of the Air Force. Is that is that correct, too?
1: That's correct. Let let me start on that part first. Yeah, this was an area of debate. Should Space Force have its own, not only a separate service, but its own department with its own civilian secretary of the Space Force? The decision was to go more like the Marine Corps. And in fact, the Air Force will provide a lot of the support functions. Space Force will not have its own medical corps. It will not have its own JAGs, the military lawyers. Uh, A lot of those support, in order to, to keep the Space Force, you know, rather than duplicate, uh the decision was they'd rely on the air force for a lot of those support capabilities uh there there is not yet a there's not going to be an, anytime soon a space force war college uh you know <laughs> if they open one of those you know i'll you know think about what de- depend you know w- whether they open it in alabama or colorado may matter a little bit for whether i'd want to go i'm i'm kind of a dry weather and mountains guy more than more than i am warm and humid so we'll, we'll see about that uh in terms of the mission areas for space force uh there are a couple of things they do um, um One is what they call space domain awareness, which means knowing what is in space and what is it up to. uh They have a lot of tracking radars they you know they're responsible for knowing what's in orbit and and not just what's it, what's in orbit but figuring out what what are the capabilities of other countries' satellites what are they trying to do with them? Um, they also operate. Uh, and provide space support to the rest of the services. So Space Force runs the GPS satellites, uh, the uh, the communication satellites. The, 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 co- the decision that was eventually made was they don't actually operate the reconnaissance satellites. So there, there's an organization in the intelligence community called the National Reconnaissance Office. They operate the spy satellites, and those were not given to Space Force. Uh, and then Space Force uh, is in charge of uh, defending sat you know uh, defending satellites from adversary attacks and potentially engaging in offensive counter space operations that is if we want to uh damage or disable adversary satellites we do have a few ways of doing that that we've acknowledged they they 've shown they have a they have a big uh radar you know big dish on a truck that they uh, have acknowledged can be used to jam enemy communication satellites uh we the as to Certainly not in any kind of open basis, and I I think this is correct. We actually don't have any anti-satellite weapons that we have in the inventory ready to go. We have tested them. We thought about developing them in the 1980s. Um, I have no doubt we have the technology to to do that, and some of our ballistic missile defense missiles could be used against some satellites. Um, Space Force does not have anti-satellite weapons per se, and especially – you know their their recruiting commercials may give you a different impression but space force does not have astronauts it does not have <laughs> battle cruisers you know zipping around in space firing lasers at at enemy satellites uh you know basically they you know they in fact space force doesn't really have any pilots uh, they probably have a few i'm sure they have some aircraft they use to move their vip's around um but it's really technical people you know uh doing a lot you know operating satellites Um, developing new technologies, you know, thinking about defensive and offensive operations with robotic, you know, robotic systems, uh, anti-satellite weapons. But Space Force does not have spaceships or astronauts.
0: So their recruiting is probably going to be very heavy on the technical side, engineers, physicists, uh, that kind of thing.
1: I would think so, and in fact, to to their credit, they're really looking at some ways to be more flexible with military careers. Um, They recognize they they need to attract a very technical workforce. Uh, They're going to want them to have you know stay for the long term, and that a lot of the knowledge they need is on the outside. So uh, they're they're still figuring out how to work this, but uh, they're looking to be able to give a lot more flexibility to their officers to say go get graduate degrees while still in service. to be able to go spend a year or two in private industry and Mm -hmm. come back you know so like for example maybe you go spend a year working for SpaceX right. or you know an IT company and come back to the force with a better understanding of what the commercial capabilities are um, so they they recognize that the, you know and the, you know I I hope you know you John you will know that the military the military likes to squish everything into identical looking boxes oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so hopefully they'll be able to continue with this but the space force leadership you know there, there are a lot of complaints about about inflexibilities in traditional military careers. Space Force, to their credit, is is picking up on that and is looking to, I I think, try some innovative personnel system uh, approaches to be able to attract and keep the kind of technical people they need. That's good. That's good.
0: Hey, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. David Burbach from the U.S. Naval War College, and we're discussing the importance of space to American national security. Uh, so, David, let's, let's pull back out a bit on the nexus between space and American national security. Can you talk a little bit about the, the current treaties that exist that apply to space? What are they, and, and how do they impact space?
1: Yeah space is is not entirely the uh, the you know the, the an ungoverned wild west. We actually do have some international law governing space. Um, some of it looks a little bit like law for the high seas and and actually the the real model that people thought of was how we manage Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Um, back in the 1960s the late 1960s uh, all the major countries agreed to something called the Outer Space Treaty with some fundamental principles um, most importantly they agreed nobody can claim territory in space. You know, you can plant a flag on the moon to say we were here, take a good picture, but no country and all the major spacefaring countries have agreed to this. You can't claim territory. You can't say this orbital zone belongs to us and you can't use it. All of space is open to the free and peaceful use of all countries. Um, The treaty also said you can't put nuclear weapons in space. Uh, And it said you cannot put any military equipment or conduct any military activities on the moon or other solid bodies. Um, And in general, that, you know language that that is um, uh, you know a, uh, ambitious and, and maybe a bit vague but that space should be used strictly for the peaceful benefit of all humankind so we we all have agreed nobody can go to the moon and say this crater belongs to us stay out um, notably the treaty does not prevent does not ban weapons in space uh, it certainly suggests Hey we'd really you know we all think space ought to be pretty peaceful but as the major countries have interpreted it if you were to put you know an anti-satellite weapon in orbit and it just sits there that the the US the Soviets the Chinese all agree that counts as a peaceful use of space until you actually fire it at, at an adversary so Beyond that, there it it is relatively vague, and there and there are more specific rules too. For example, everybody agrees that if a foreign astronaut crash lands in your territory, you're supposed to help them out. Um, one thing that's relevant with the growth in the commercial sector, uh, every the countries uh, major countries have all agreed. Anything that's launched from your country or by an organization based in your country, it's your responsibility. So if SpaceX, you know, if Jeff Bezos, if they launch something, the United States government is ultimately on the hook if that were to crash and cause damage somewhere else. And so that's one reason we have a regulatory system to make sure, you know, that they have insurance and that we think their rockets aren't going to blow up. But ultimately, it says countries are on the hook for whatever their citizens do in space.
0: So how how do you you see things playing out as more advanced technologies continue to be developed, especially in the reconnaissance and the warfare area, uh, new defense-related technologies, uh, maneuverable reentry vehicles, uh, hypersonic uh, delivery capabilities, uh, directed energy weapons, those kind of things, Mm -hmm. uh, space planes? How, how, How do you see that impacting space?
1: Well um, a lot to talk about there and one 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 place that i 'll start is just to mention we often talk about there being a dual use dilemma for space, mm-hmm. meaning that almost any technology that 's useful for civilian applications has direct military applications and and probably the best illustration of that is it is you know when SpaceX launches a capsule to the space station or puts a Space Force satellite in orbit, they're using exactly the same rocket. They're Falcon 9. Um, you don't know if somebody's building a new rocket. Uh, is it going to be for a space hotel or are they going to launch you know, a laser battle platform? Who knows? Uh, likewise, you know, one an area of technology that's growing rapidly on the civilian side is interest in uh, robotic satellites that can rendezvous and then refuel or repair commercial satellites mm-hmm. um, to get more use out of them. Well, the dual-use problem there is if I can rendezvous with your satellite and refuel it, I could – instead of having a refueling probe, I can have like a big pair of garden shears and I could rendezvous and cut your solar panel off or a can of spray paint and I paint over the lens on your spy camera. Uh, So – and. And we you know, this is a v you know, this is a real issue where the Chinese and the Russians point the, the uh Space Force, I guess, now has a small space plane, uh the X thirty seven looks like a miniature space shuttle. They point at that and say well, we think this has military use to, you know, maybe you're going to grab one of our satellites. Uh, we say it's just a, you know, to take technology up in space and test it out. We point to, you know, we, I, I have seen us cite the robotic arm on the Chinese, on the new Chinese space station, like the space shuttle had an arm or our space station has one, and say, ah, well, that's technology that could be used to grab and disable a satellite. Well, you know, so everybody gets very suspicious of new technology because anything probably has a military use. Uh, so, what are some of the things to look for? Um, actually, one that I'll point to beyond some of those technologies is simply the, the growth of the commercial sector, where there's a explosion in surveillance capabilities from the private sector. Lots of, you know, when you see satellite photos of, some, like, if you remember the uh, that ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal, we all, right. you know, we had all had detailed satellite photos, you know, the next day. Nothing happens on earth now that commercial companies, including non-American commercial companies, they can provide you detailed imagery, radar scans. So one thing we have to, to think about on our military side is everything we do is being watched. And watched by people who won 't necessarily stop watching if we ask them to right. <laughs> uh, and that that's a that's a different way of, of having to operate. It also works well for us because I, I frankly I think we're more used to that than some of our adversaries um, you know we 're just a more open society uh, in terms of some of the other technologies um, you know, uh, again, I, I'm not sure space, you know, other, I'm not sure space planes actually change all that much. Uh, you know, it's, it does, and I think we're getting some use being able to, it, it's convenient to be able to take stuff up and test it and bring it back. Uh, and, uh, you know, but I'm I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that that I would point to that as a big change. You mentioned hypersonics and maneuvering uh, reentry vehicles for missiles. Um in some ways those aren't necessarily like technically we wouldn't consider those space weapons because they, they don't go into orbit and hang out in space. The, the outer space treaty interpret, because nobody wanted to give up their long range nuclear missiles, we and the Russians and the Soviets and the China, you know, everybody agrees that a ballistic missile going through space is not actually in space. It's a bit of, you know, legal, you know, maneuvering, but you know, no, nobody wanted, nobody wanted to give up their missiles. So, uh, Technically, we don't count those as space weapons, but what they do create is, you know, making it more difficult for the U.S. to possibly intercept and defend the country from incoming adversary missiles. Um, I'm – i've been pretty skeptical of our missile defense capabilities i mean we we've you know for short range missiles like we just saw in the Persian Gulf we've got some real capability uh, for say modern russian icBMs uh, I, you know I, I I would not you know let me put it this way I would not want to count on all the nuclear bombs being intercepted, you know, I, I'd rather avoid them coming at us in the first place. What both the, the Russians and the Chinese are doing is exploring these, you know, new technologies that'll make it even more difficult uh, to track and intercept. So I, you know, I, I think the big takeaway is if you thought missile defense was going to get us out of the risk of nuclear retaliation, I'm skeptical that we're actually going to get there.
0: Yeah. I, and I, I don't think the, like ground-based missile defense is really designed for a major nuclear exchange between the U.S. and Mm -hmm. Russia or the U.S. and China. It's really more about, you know, defending against small numbers of missiles launched from, say, North Korea or Iran or something like that. Exactly. Uh, So you mentioned Russia and China uh, and impacts to our deterrence strategies. What kind of capabilities are the Russians and Chinese working on specifically that kind of undermine, undermine our traditional thoughts about deterrence?
1: Uh, well, look, uh, a couple of things, and you know, the one thing that's very clear is both Russia and, and this goes beyond just space. They are both absolutely determined, as I, as I would be if I were one of their strategists, that under any circumstance they want to be able to uh, retaliate against the United States with <clears throat> nuclear weapons. If they, if you know, so they they want to be in a position where they think the U.S. can never get away with a disarming first strike on them, and that motivates it's a couple of things. I mean Putin has talked about what sound like some crazy new weapons like an intercontinental underwater torpedo with a 100 megaton bomb like it, you know, quietly goes across the Atlantic, you know, and then goes up to New York Harbor and sets off a giant nuke or nuclear powered nuclear nuclear ramjets like um, imagine, you know, something the size of a nuclear bomb uh, of a bomber, but it's got a nuclear reactor as it flies through the atmosphere flying at Mach 3 intercontinental range. Um, we actually thought about building that in the 1960s ourselves and decided, uh, you know, that's, like, does anybody even want to be around when you hit go on the test of that thing? <laughs> yeah. Well, the Russians actually, they, they tried testing something like that about two years ago, and the, the apparently the reactor blew up when they fished it out of the water, and it actually injured, or I forget if it injured or maybe even killed a couple of their engineers. Um, but the, the Russians, I, I think they're signaling, you know, we, we're you know we're we are going to do whatever it takes to be sure that we have a technology that we think will get around you know you won't be able to preemptively destroy our missiles you won't be able to to shoot them down and that's similar you know the chinese too recently tested what we call a fobs uh, fobs fractional orbital bombardment system uh which simply means that instead of going you know the short way like a cannonball from china i used to be a sort of across the pacific to the u.s they tested going the long way around putting something in a partial orbit and then deorbiting it to come down which if you imagine uh, in in wartime would mean it would come up over south america from the south where we don't have warning radars we don't have missile defenses um again i i have not been somebody who thought well i'm not worried about all these nuclear weapons because we have defenses because we really don't have much in the way of defenses but what i think they've both signaled is even if you were to rapidly expand your conventional, your traditional missile defenses, we're ready with other technologies that would neutralize you. So don't, you know, let's not get in a defensive race. You're not going to be able, you know, nobody's going to get out of what you know what we've long called mutually assured
0: destruction. Yeah, so that, I think that's really the calculation that's being made in both Moscow and Beijing is that there's this uh, desire to maintain that mutual assured destruction uh, mm-hmm. deterrence factor. Uh, and they see us advancing. We see them advancing, both those, both Russia and China. Uh, so these these new technologies could be destabilizing if we're not in constant communication with each other, right? The value, a- absolutely. The value of diplomacy. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. And yeah. for a space angle there – you know a a real worry that both Russia and China would have is if we if and you know we too but they they particularly fear the u s might try and take away their space cap their space warning capabilities mm-hmm. uh you know the if we were if the Russians lost their missile warning satellites because we disabled or destroyed them uh so they didn't know American missiles were coming until they were much closer and showed up on radar you know they 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 worry about u s intentions now we have you know of course, they're the ones who have done ASAT tests more recently, right. you know, and we might, you know, we can reasonably worry about the same thing. Um, so in the Cold War, we, we actually, you know, we sort of recognize that that going after, you know, on the one hand, if you attacked a missile warning satellite before you were really about to push the big red button, you might trigger a war you didn't want. On the yeah. other hand, if you really were going to push the big red button, it would be useful to take out those satellites. And that that's a, a basic dilemma that we faced all through the Cold War, you know, and Still, if we worry about that. Yep.
0: Uh, so, Dr. David Burbach, we're closing in on the end of our time this morning. Unfortunately, this has been fascinating. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open up the floor to you. What else should listeners know about the nexus of space and American national security interests? Anything we haven't covered today that you feel is really important?
1: You know a couple of areas that that I would suggest we need to think about one relates to the debris problem, where in general uh, we need to worry about people are calling it space sustainability or or more narrowly space traffic management that not only anti satellites but as these constellations of satellites grow uh, sp- spacex plans you know they 've talked about putting up as many as a hundred thousand satellites of their own, <laughs> and there are other companies too that want similar size. So we're we're getting to a point where we're going to need some international regulation. The Outer Space Treaty, does, you know, all it says is don't harmfully interfere with other countries. We're going to need to be specific about what does that mean, and maybe we need something you know, more like how we have global rules on air traffic management and air traffic control. Um, and I would love to see agreements against anti-satellite testing, but we, we need to recognize that at least low Earth orbit is smaller than you would think, and we're going to need international management. Um, the other area, that, a little more out there but not as much as you might think, is uh, we're going to need to think about how to share space resources uh, with other countries like nobody can claim territory on the moon but we also do agree if you know if you go to the moon and pick up a rock and bring it back to the earth can you go on ebay and sell that for and presumably a lot of money you know uh, at some point uh or you know what's the law on you know if the you know if somebody goes to the moon and picks up the flag from the apollo 11 lander and brings that back and wants to put it in a museum <laughs> yeah. now i don't think any country would would you know that would make us really angry i would think yeah. but we don't have good rules on how to manage and share space resources if we and the chinese Both want to, you know, study the ice in some dark lunar crater. Um, How do we manage it if there's, you know, if we're both there and we're going to get in each other's way, how do we manage that? And we are actually NASA and the U.S. State Department have been, you know, looking and have been trying to do more diplomacy on that. And that's a good thing. But, you know, it's it's not as far out as you might think that we'll have to worry about that.
0: Yeah, I, I I agree. And just for my own knowledge, it's always been my impression that the Vice President of the United States generally has been the point person in the U.S. government for leading space policy. Is that still rough, roughly true? You know, it very we had the that has often
1: been the case. Some presidents have not really followed that model. Uh, Joe Biden has continued having a. VP led National Space Council, so that you know I, I don't get the sense that Vice President Harris is as space interested as VP Pence was. I mean, he he and a lot of it comes down to the personality of the VP. And Pence, sure. uh, also Dan Quayle, back in the HW uh, Bush administration, were actually pretty in, you know really took that role and ran with it. Okay. Uh, we'll see what what VP Harris does.
0: Yeah. So, Dr. David Burbach, thank you so much for taking time from your busy schedule to educate us on space and American national security interests. Is there anything you're currently researching uh, related to this topic?
1: Yeah, actually pulling together my interest in civil-military relations and space, uh, I'm I'm, doing, I'm looking into Space Force. So on the one hand, I'm trying to understand a little more about the politics and the bureaucratics of how we got it. Because in 2016, when some, a few members of Congress raised the idea, nobody thought it was going to happen. So how exactly did we get there? And, and that's partly uh, you know of value for the officers I teach to help them understand kind of the sausage-making in D.C. It's a good example of you come up with a good idea. How does it actually get enacted? and also what should space force be doing should it have a more narrow military role or should it be like the army in the u.s west in the 1800s you know doing everything from exploring to you know the building the equivalent of trading posts in space there are some people who see a really expansive role i probably lean more narrow but but i think we you know there, there's it this is a good time to think about what its long-term role ought to be
0: and the last question i have for you is uh, any publications out there that you would point to for our listeners to go to if they want to learn more
1: Yeah, a a couple. One one is um, for more specifically on uh, space security and sustainability, um, I would recommend looking at two uh, uh, think tanks, the Secure World Foundation or CSIS, Center Mm -hmm. for Strategic and International International Studies. Both have put out annual reports meant to be digestible to non-specialists on space capabilities. Um, I've also got uh, on the Naval War College YouTube channel, I've actually got a lecture on space and national security that goes into more detail on some of the issues that we've touched on that uh, your readers that's freely available to uh, to anyone who wants to find it
0: great well professor david burrock thank you so much really appreciate your time today thank you
1: so much for having me john have a good day
0: and that closes this week 's edition of national security this week we 're on kymn radio a m ten eighty and f m ninety five point one i 'm your host john olson thank you for joining us today and look forward to sharing time with you again next wednesday morning at nine a m uh, before we sign off i'd just like to remind our readers or our listeners excuse me uh, that uh, two weeks ago january eleventh Uh, My co-author, David Bruns, and I launched our our fifth novel together, Command and Control. We now have over 100 reviews on Amazon uh, for that novel. And our next book in in the trilogy, uh, Counter-Strike, launches on February 8th. So it's coming soon to a bookstore near you. Thank you for listening to Here this week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish your week, everyone. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.